Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. Uh, I, as always, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here is I'm going to read a script. Uh, this one is Vince Champ, uh, Champ, comedian, serial rapist, and a real jerk. Um, this is written by David. Thank you so much, David, for putting this together. Uh, and afterwards, of course, Jen adds in some of the finest, well, memes and images and videos and sounds and everything that makes this podcast come to life or i mean it's also a video so it's like a video podcast uh yeah obviously if you're just listening you don't get any of those images so why not check it out on youtube yes uh also um yeah i'm wearing a christmas jumper if you're watching that if you're watching this i have no idea right now it's the lead up to christmas when i'm recording this obviously this might come out in january and people will be like what's up with the christmas sweater simon (laughs) It's a bit weird, isn't it? And honestly, it's just very warm and very comfortable. And you might see this sweater just make more of an appearance. Because honestly, I'm just feeling really comfortable right now. Also, I'm feeling quite tired. My kid decided to get up at 5 o'clock this morning. And not even really get up, just start making some sounds. Like, they sleep in the room next door and they're just like, Eh! I'm like, oh god, what is it? So I go in and I give them a dummy. Or a pacifier, as Americans call it. And she goes back to sleep. And then I'm like, oh, okay, back to bed. And I just can't get back to sleep because I got to pee. And I'm like, no, I'm peeing. It's like, oh, all right, I'm getting up. So I got about five this morning, which was awesome. <laughs> got to get it together. I got some coffee. <laughs> that sound was me slapping myself on the head. Uh, let's go. Let's go. Get that energy. First of all, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my to the late Norm Macdonald, one of the greatest comedians of all time, who gave me the subtitle for this script. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Vince Champ, all will become clear in a moment. I'm also a bit unfamiliar with the story of Norm Macdonald. I, I know he's a comedian, but I don't really know much about him. I feel like comedians between the US and the UK don't often cross the pond. Like, I feel there's a lot of British comedians who I feel like American people wouldn't know about. And there's also a lot of American comedians that I feel like British people wouldn't know about. And I don't know a lot about Norm MacDonald, um, which is interesting. I mean, obviously, some comedians definitely do. Let's just move on. with This isn't a podcast about comedians and their uh, international appeal. Let's continue. But if you are familiar with Vince Champ, then you know why I mentioned Norm Macdonald, since you can't look up Vince Champ and go more than two minutes without finding a Norm reference or quotation. Type the words Vince Champ into YouTube, go to the comment section of any video that comes up, and you'll see what I mean. Okay, this is all a total mystery to me, because, I mean, I, I know who Norm Macdonald is, I've no idea who Vince Champ is, I've no idea why they'd be related. Oh, if you're new here... The reason I don't know any of these things is because I'm a true professional and I've never read this stuff before. It's all brand new to me. Norm Macdonald, who passed away earlier this year from cancer, frequently liked to make uh, blatantly idiotic jokes in order to watch people's reactions. He didn't care if the joke made you laugh, though it often did. He just wanted to amuse himself at your reaction. An awkward silence, groans of frustration, or scowls of anger suited him just as well as peals of laughter. All would be met with a look of pure joy and indulgence on Norm's face. He didn't cater towards the sour-faced, thin-skinned, or tiptoe around the more humorless fusspots in the audience. He loved jokes for the jokes themselves. He sounds like a very funny guy. 
I, I would like to see more. I'd like to know more about him and watch some of his stuff. I'm sure I can look it up on YouTube. That's probably what I'll do with my lunch break today. One of Norm's blatantly idiotic and oft-repeated jokes was to raise the name of one of history's monsters in conversation. Adolf Hitler or Albert Fish, the werewolf of Wisteria, or today's eponymous victim, the former stand-up comedian Vince Champ, whom Norm utterly despised as a traitor to the profession's central calling to lift the dark feelings of the audience for a while, not to unload your own darkness upon the world just because you think you could get away with it. Norm would then give you a straight-faced and grim account of who this monster was and their horrific crimes against humankind and nature. He'd be unnecessarily detailed. He would use high-flown and biblical language to underline the travesties the person in question had imposed upon the indelibly blood-stained pages of the history of human crime. He'd go on a bit too long, staring you in the eye, his face impassive, his voice cold. And just when you'd start to wonder how this pot-staring comedian was going to wrap this up and actually make this catalogue of atrocity funny, he'd interrupt himself in the middle of recounting the details of a genocide or murder or rape and bluster, you know, I mean, this guy's a real jerk. <laughs> Understatement of the century there, Norm. The punchline was stupid. It was an anticlimax. And it obviously was an inappropriate understatement describing the deeds of an atrocious person couched in the archaic 1930s radio language that Norm was so fond of using. Is this like what they call an anti-joke? Or like, you know, where it's like the joke is that it's not really a joke. <laughs> you're like, ah, oh no. It wasn't designed to unleash howls of laughter, just a grin, just a grin or a chuckle. But it was with this cheeky punchline that Norm Macdonald transformed any kind of horror into something gleamingly funny within seconds. Norm was the embodiment of the idea that anything could be laughed at with just a little bit of introspection, intelligence, and childlike joy. <laughs> ah, yes, the childlike joy of genocide. <laughs> The exact opposite of the squeaky clean comedian Vince Champ, who stayed away from all the controversial topics, never cursed, never pushed the envelope, and never offended anyone. And in private, he turned out to be one of the worst people ever. Or in Norm's words, a real jerk. For Norm, no monstrous topic in the world existed so fierce and evil that it could not be slain by a little bit of immature gallows humor. Oh my god, what's that? That the gallows humor the most brilliant example of that is is it from a movie or just a meme where it's the two guys standing on a standing at the actual gallows you know with the the noose down and one dude turns to the other dude and just says you know they're both about to be hung he just looks at him and goes first time <laughs> It was small acts of genius like that joke not my joke that I stole from a meme or whatever but the 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 Norm Macdonald joke, which made dozens of comedy legends from Jerry Seinfeld to Bill Burr and millions of fans worldwide dub Norm Macdonald one of the greatest comedians of all time. Conversely, if it were not for Norm's joke, Vince Champ, whose tepid comedy could barely be found anywhere today, would have long since faded into obscurity. Interestingly, I reflect, we could make Norm's same joke after every episode of The Casual Criminalist. Oh my god, couldn't we just? I'm like, Norm Macdonald got into intricate details, and I'm like, as intricate as our details? I was reading one of these the other day where I was like, no, I'm not sure if it's come out yet, maybe it has. But I was just reading it, and I was like, no, 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 no. And I, I always read ahead, you know, like a few words, maybe a line ahead, so, uh, you know, I don't stumble over myself at every word. And I was like, we're not reading that. <laughs> that, is, uh, it, that is just way too far. 
And we shall certainly need a liberal dose of gallows humor to approach the twisted tale of a man as psychologically revolting as Vince Champ, a hack comedian with what Norm Macdonald calls the world's worst gimmick who provided humanity with one of life's darkest punchlines. Atrocity in Omaha in the evening of the 5th of March 1997, the University of Nebraska in the city of Omaha is certainly not in the American Ivy League. It's a decent little university in a flyover state with a relatively small enrollment of students. The only thing I know about Omaha is, uh, I think Warren Buffett lives there, right? Doesn't he famously live in, like, Omaha in a regular house that's not really a regular house? But, uh, that's, like, the, the common thing. And also, uh, the Counting Crows, right? Omaha, somewhere in Middle America. God, I'm terrible at singing, but you know the one. You know the one. Somewhere in Middle Middle America. <laughs> it's like no one really knows where it is. Somewhere in there. It doesn't really matter. I'm sorry, everyone from Omaha. Wait, Nebraska? No, Omaha's the state. Nebraska's the town. Big brain. Omaha itself is a rather unassuming city. Wait, Omaha's not the state. Ah, <laughs> I'm so stupid. I just read this. <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska. Nebraska, Omaha. Honestly, if someone was like, Omaha's a state, I'd be like, yeah, it's, yeah, definitely. I agree. It's not, though. It's apparently it's a city. It's a city that, with this restrained countryside aesthetic that has an unashamedly, unashamedly corny community spirit and a can-do attitude, which is one of the greatest virtues of chronically underappreciated U.S. cities and among the most attractive qualities of everyday Americans. And as a humble backdrop to our story, Omaha is not the sort of place you usually see many students or criminals migrating to. Heidi Hess, a part-time grad student teacher who was working by herself on a, in a computer lab on the University of Nebraska campus. It was getting late. Most other people had gone home. Her anonymity would usually be protected by convention, but Heidi had bravely chosen to sacrifice her anonymity, claim ownership of her story, and freely share it in order to overcome what was done to her and also let other victims of such crimes know they are not alone. A tough decision which should be commended and applauded. Do victims have that anonymity? I guess so. But it's so often, like, I'm like, wait. Yeah, because in, like, law cases and stuff, it'll just be referred to, like, maybe their first name. I, I especially think, like, in Europe, it's also interesting you read, like, like, I'll read the paper here. I live in Prague in the Czech Republic, and you're not the paper, but, you know, news websites. And until someone is guilty of a crime, they're just, like, John P. Or, like, Mike S. I mean these are super english names that i chose but like the equivalents and uh, their faces will be blurred out in all of the newspapers and stuff until they're convicted so it's like the the newspapers just don't report on it which is like i guess that's pretty good and i never really thought about it before but that seems like quite a good thing to do and victims should definitely be protected but i just was thinking on casual criminals we often know the names of the victims but I guess that's because it's quite high profile or they come forward or something like that. I guess also sometimes it's... it's No, most of the time we do know who they were. A man slipped quietly through the door of her lab. Quickly, quietly but swiftly, he walked away. Oh, he walked up behind Hess, who was so engrossed in her work that she had not looked up at him, and the man put a gloved hand over the woman's eyes. He then pulled a ragged cap, cloth cap over the woman's entire face so she could not identify him. In the days before CCTV cameras were placed all over university campuses for the express purpose of student safety, no footage would capture the man entering or leaving the premises either. I'm here to rob you, the man muttered. 
ripped from what she was doing, still disorientated, Heidi has panicked. The man gripped the woman and held her firm until she stopped struggling. He told her in a deep but perversely apologetic voice that if she did as she did as he said, no one needs to get hurt. Gradually, Heidi stopped moving, and in an adrenaline-muddled flash, see, she came to the foul, ugly, and traumatizing conclusion that her best chance of survival was to comply with her attacker. It is this cold realization of potential powerlessness and loss of agency, where nothing you can do will avert the harm being done to you, which causes the most mental damage and can take decades or even a lifetime to repair. I mean, this guy was a real jerk. <laughs> I don't know. I also feel like, isn't that the best advice? I know you're you're always watching movies or whatever. It's like, oh, now is the time to get the gun. Now is the time to grab the gun off your attacker because, I mean, you're dead anyway. But when you're in that situation, you're like, I don't know if I'm going to die. I mean, if I'd seen the person's face, I'd be like, okay, it's probably time to take a few more risks, isn't it, whistleboy? <laughs> let's uh let you know that's not a good thing but if they've prevented me from seeing their face and stuff it's like our oh, chances are i'm probably going to be all right because then they don't want to kill me because they haven't let me see the face right that that makes sense that's not just a movie thing right that seems like logical um but also i feel like if someone robs me if i'm getting if some if you know someone comes up to me in the street and is like give me your wallet i'll be like okay <laughs> you want to go to the atm i can take you out some cash just don't kill me just let me go i don't care take my wallet take my phone take my whatever i've got on me go for it it's fine please don't hurt me i feel like that's good advice don't fight back <laughs> unless you are really screwed then fight back the man's voice sounded deep resonant and oddly formal like a newsreader trapped in that room with her attacker the man proceeded to sexually assault her in multiple ways for over an hour and with it being late at night, it seemed unlikely that anyone would hear her scream for help. Not that the victim dared, because she feared that non-compliance would cause the rapist to turn violent. Gonna say, David, that uh, maybe, maybe, rape is a violent act in itself. <laughs> Could we maybe say, turn more violent? <laughs> turn, like, murderous? I'm sure that's like... <laughs> David doesn't think that rape isn't violent. He's probably just phrased that badly. <laughs> The entire time, the man debbed his victim with questions, expecting a response, which Heidi was too terrified not to give. He asked where she was from. He asked about her parents and siblings. He asked about her past sexual experiences. A very strange and twisted modus operandi. Heidi gave... <laughs> it's not really super surprising, though, is it, from a guy who breaks in to rape someone. It's like, he's gonna be a bit weird. Shocking. Uh, Heidi gave the sort of brief, terrified answers that anyone in her position would feel forced to give. She was overwhelmed by the feeling that she might die if she did not comply. A shockingly cold, venomous, and paralyzing feeling that anyone who has gone through a sexual assault must deal with for the rest of their lives. This is one of those things. It's like, oh my god, I think about things in my life that have been, like, traumatizing. And, I mean, I've never been a victim of a sexual assault like this. But I think about, like, stupid that I still am, like, have bad dreams about to this day. And I mean really stupid shit. Like, people will have a go at me for comparing, but what I want to do is not, like, say that these things are in any way related, but how something that is a 1 out of 10 on the scale of extremeness can still bother you years later. Whereas something like this, which is like a 10 out of 10 on the scale of extremeness, that must just, you, this must just be with you forever. Like the one, the one I'm thinking of is like just two nights ago, I had like nightmares about uh, doing final exams, you know, university exams and just being unprepared for them. 
And it's like that, it's like the, the trauma of like going through like those hard exams at the end of university is still something that, you know, 15 years later, I'll still have like bad dreams about for no reason. And that is like a one. It's not even a one, it's a nothing. I can't imagine the, 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 how harrowing that is and how that must screw people up. It's so crazy. People are such dicks to each other. Yeah, I guess that's therapy and psychiatry and all of that stuff. I really don't want anyone to think that I'm comparing my stupid example with rape. I'm just trying to put it in perspective of like how intense that could be, right? That's so intense. Afterwards, the assailant did not immediately flee. Instead, the man asked his victim if she would pray for his soul. <laughs> Crossing your fingers behind your back right there. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. God will definitely forgive you. <laughs> Maybe after a thousand years of being tortured in hell? A strange request, one that may imply guilt, but also a putridly selfish act. By forcing his victim to pray for forgiveness for him, he was in a sense coercing an implied forgiveness out of uh, his victim, and also implying that the victim was somehow complicit in his crime. Then the man finally left, but not before politely requesting that the victim wait an hour before alerting the authorities. To add insult to injury, the man did indeed rob her of what little cash she had and what few valuables she had on her at the time. After what seemed to be like an eternity, but in a superhuman display of endurance that was actually just a few minutes, Hess got up and alerted the police. The victim had not properly seen her assailant, but he sounded white, given the percentage of Omaha, Nebraska population at the time that was Caucasian. This sounded like a safe bet. The Omar police sent out an alert of a recent sex crime, along with a description of a white man in his 20s or 30s as the perpetrator who might still be in the area. The police then set about the task of investigating male students on campus and scouring the sex offenders registry for, nearly, for nearby ex-cons who did not have an alibi. This is going to be a wide net, my guys. It's like, yeah, we don't know what he looked like. looks like. He's white in Nebraska, and he's in his 20s or 30s. And that's... Then they just start looking for people who are criminals that match that description. Isn't that going to be like, I, I don't know, a good proportion of them? They ran the assailant's DNA in the hopes that the criminal database would find a match. No such luck. Well, that's also sort of helpful. I know it's not helpful. It's obviously not helpful in a way. But it also rules out all the criminals because their database, you know, all the criminals who are now in the area because it's like, well, they're going to be in the database. So it's like, well, that's helpful. For one, we can now stop looking for a previous criminal who's at least in the DNA register. And also when we do find a suspect, boom, get a sample of their DNA, match it up. Handy, you know, pretty handy stuff. As with so many rape cases like these where the rapist is not known to their victim, the unknown assailant was not found and there was little hope he would ever be found. Well, unless they, unless he does some other crime and he gets his DNA tested or nowadays they, uh, maybe one of his ancestors does that ancestry DNA thing and it's like, boom, uh, mate, <laughs> your brother is that rapist dude from when, the 80s? That's got to be, that's got to be, I, 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 it's very cool what this technology can do. And also kind of scary. I mean, not for me, but it's like, I mean, it's like one of those things where you're like, yeah, 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 this is great. But it's like, why was if the Nazis had that technology? It'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> it'd be, it would, or like any genocidal group who's like, yeah, we don't like that part of your DNA and we can now see it's in a big database online. I don't know. Generally, I think this stuff's great because it obviously helps catch rapists and murderers and the Golden State Killer and all of this. But it's also like, I don't know, if we lived in a bit of a different world, it would be a bit, a bit more terrifying, wouldn't it?
and Hess thought she would have gone had to go her entire life repairing the damage that he had done without closure and without justice and forever feeling anxiety about heading out of her front door or ever trusting the average man that she happened to meet again yeah i mean that's that that's what i'm talking about that's that lifelong this is going to be with you forever i mean you can deal with it but it's gonna it's always gonna be there isn't it that's so intense justice in pasadena it is the late evening of the 6th of may 1997 just a couple of months later and the rapist was now 1550 miles or 2500 kilometers away in the city of pasadena california not too far from downtown los angeles pasadena is a typical laid-back and sun-kissed paradise with exorbitant property prices and just a little bit too much of a seedy underbelly that whole place in california i remember like i went there a few years ago and it's just we were staying it was for like vidcon which is like a big uh like video youtube conference that goes on in in california pre-covid and uh we stayed in some airbnb and it was super expensive and it was super shitty <laughs> and i'm like what the f- california and so i was just like curious like how much does this kind of piece of crap house cost it was like a million pound or a million point something dollars and i'm like there's nothing around here it's just on a street with other nothing houses the walls are made out of cardboard and i'm like who the hell lives here what is going on everything is just it was just run down and bad but it wasn't even run it was fairly new and it was already run down i was like who built this you made it out of paper yeah so uh i don't know (laughs) los angeles don't understand Pasadena is composed of luxury shops, cultural institutions, and interesting architecture combined with a high crime rate and almost third world profusions of drug addiction and homelessness, which the rich inhabitants are at pains to avoid and ignore. Yeah, <laughs> great. That sounds like the solution. Let's avoid and ignore the homeless population. Brilliant work. Uh, the city itself is. <laughs> I was doing another video the other day and uh it was like set it it was talking about like ridiculous laws from the past and one of the ridiculous laws was they just made homelessness illegal they were like how are we going to deal with this homelessness problem let's make being homeless illegal problem solved and i made a joke it's like yeah let's just make you know screw it let's just make disease illegal that'll solve the problem the past it was the worst the city itself is small but for many decades in the 20th century it was slowly drawn into the orbit of the much larger city of los angeles and today it's little more than a de facto suburb yeah another thing about los angeles is it's just never ending it's never absolutely it's just absolutely massive and i know it's kind of like drifts from like there's downtown la and then uh the uh vidcon is at disney in uh i think it's like near orange county or we were staying in orange county and i'm like wait this is separate from los angeles because i you know you drive in there or in a taxi or whatever and i'm like but i never left the city it's not like we drove through some countryside it was just it was just city all the way and it's like now we're in a different city but the city never ended that doesn't mean it's a different city and then you're flying out and you look it down and it was night and i'm like it's just endless it's just an endless city and another anecdote because i don't know why i'm sharing all of these it's just i just find it fascinating how huge it is i was like yeah yeah cool i'll just walk down to the beach and i looked on google maps and i was like it's not that far it was like two hours walk and it was hot and i got burned (laughs) i was like desperately looking for a petrol station to like buy some like sun uh sun cream or something and my my head got burned because you know california 20 minutes in the sun my 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 bald head is getting burned sorry enough of this boring talk about los angeles 
Pasadena City College, like the University of Nebraska, is not Ivy League. It's a mid-tiered educational institution with a relatively small student enrollment rate. This is exactly the sort of institution which our perpetrator frequently found himself. The hour was late, it was dark, and most staff and students had already gone home. A female student, whose anonymity is protected, was walking across the campus when a man came up behind her, grabbed her, and covered her eyes with a gloved hand. The woman managed to let out a scream before the attacker shifted his hand down to her mouth and silenced her. He said, This is robbery, and the woman should not struggle. If she did exactly what he said, she wouldn't get hurt. He then pulled a cloth hood over her head as she, so she could not identify him. Gripping the woman's arms, the attacker then proceeded to frog march her toward a poorly lit area. Fortunately, two people walking nearby had heard the woman's screams. They quickly located the source of the cry and saw a deeply troubling sight. A man in a black ski mask was shoving a woman, whose head was covered with some kind of fabric, into a darkened part of the campus common, obscured from view. One of these witnesses shouted at the man to stop what he was doing. The man in the ski mask immediately let go of the victim and ran away. The witness followed him and saw the rapist leap into a black four-door BMW. As the attacker sped away, the witness managed to take note of the man's license plate. Uh-oh. This is extremely careless. I don't feel like this is casual criminalist material. This just sounds like, yeah, guy's a rapist and he's, he's, he's not very smart. But there's obviously more to this story because, well, this script is very thick. I just feel this is like, well, you're going to get caught, aren't you? You are like doing this in a place where there's going to be people around. They're going to see you. You have your car there. <laughs> I'm assuming it's your car. When the number was later given to police, the owner of the vehicle came up as one Vince Champ. There we go. A stand-up comedian and resident of Los Angeles who had recently performed at Pasadena City College. Champ was arrested at his Hollywood apartment the very next day. Ah, this is why he's at... I was like, why is he at these different universities around the place? Uh, it's because he's a comedian performing at, like, I guess, university comedy clubs and stuff which i used to go to i used to uh, every week i'd go to the the comedy club at university it was great really enjoyed it love stand-up comedy when questioned vince champ denied the charges claimed the witness must have gotten the license number wrong and claimed to have been heading home at the time of the attack while this is not a great alibi and champ's car was identified at the scene the police would have a hard time pinning the attempted rape on champ so a jury could convict beyond a reasonable doubt the victim had not properly seen her attacker the two witnesses had seen only a man in a ski mask and because the sexual assault had mercifully been stopped before it could be carried out there was little in the way of dna or physical evidence attempted sexual assault of this kind have a very low conviction rate when do we get someone's dna i guess they got to be like was he arrested he was arrested yeah yeah do they take it when you're arrested or do they have to get like uh, a court order because they'll take your fingerprints right why can't they take your dna and then they'd run it in their database and be like yo 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 you're the rapey dude from before prison for you doesn't matter about this latest one because you're going to prison for the other one and maybe some other ones as well because i get the feeling this is going to expand because it's thick. Nevertheless, Vince Champ was charged with the attempted rape. He paid his bail and fully intended to appear in court to refute the charges made against him and clear his name. Indeed, if he was convicted of this crime, his entire career in the entertainment industry, built up over 12 years as a clean-cut comedian, might be completely ruined. Might be. <laughs> might be. People who are like, what's these these guys? The um... Although I feel some of these guys are performing again. Like, isn't Louis C.K.? And he definitely didn't rape anybody. He's just a bit of a weirdo. And, I mean, that feels like I'm under, underplaying that. I don't even remember what he did. Didn't he jerk off in a... What was that? Who jerked off in a plant pot? Who was that? <laughs> That's weird. Uh, but it's not It's not this. And his career 
didn't go so well for a while if you if you're a convicted rapist and your brand of comedy is clean cut or even it's not no one wants to see a rapist <laughs> that's just not it's just not good it's not good for your career if he's like you want to go to that comedy night and say like, wait isn't that the guy who was that rapist no i don't i don't want to support the rapist comedian there's lots of comedians that are very funny it's a competitive field why can't we go see someone who's not a rapist but in a pre-Me Too and indeed largely pre-internet era, if Champ managed to get the charges quashed, there were good odds that he could go on with his career largely unimpe- unimpeded by these allegations. Most of his fan base would never even hear of them, and by the time social media vigilante justice fully became a thing, these allegations would be quite old, and Champ, walled off behind publicists, could merely give them the silent treatment. Uh, I don't know. Isn't that exactly the sort of thing that someone would dig up and be like, yo, 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 <laughs> this guy... Although, if he was not convicted, then is it really... Oh, God, this is a debate that we're not going to get into today because it's way too complicated and polarizing. And I don't exactly know where I stand on this specific one. And I don't want to try and figure it out live on a podcast. (laughs) Sounds like a good way to get in trouble. Unintentionally. After all, this was Hollywood in the 1990s. Strong and ugly allegations might be brought up from time to time in hushed circles or in the tabloid press. But if they were not proven in a court of law, they did not prevent people from winning Oscars, much less having a career. Hell, even convictions or open warrants don't seem to always scupper a Hollywood career, even if it's spun the right way. Yeah, I mean, open warrants and convictions. It depends what it's for. If it's like, yeah, he was drunk driving him, wasn't he? Or it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel many celebrities have been arrested and have done crimes and stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, but they're not like horrible crimes. I mean, drunk driving is a bad crime. Don't drink drive because you could hit someone. But it's like, if you didn't and you get arrested for it, it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to not go and see... I can't remember anyone who's been convicted of this, but XYZ's movie, because he was convicted of drunk driving in the 1990s, I'm going to be like, okay, well, hopefully he's learned his lesson. All one needed was a good lawyer, a skilled agent, and perhaps some powerful friends. It really is no wonder that Hollywood was the sort of place where a manipulator, narcissist, sociopath, and sex pest like Vince Champ managed to thrive. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like Harvey Weinstein thrived, and he was like all of those things, and worse, right? I mean, also, there's that... Did you guys ever watch that TV show Entourage? There was a character in there called, like, Harvey Weinberg or something who looks like Harvey Weinstein. Like, they... Oh, I mean, like, not exactly, but it was clearly modelled on Harvey Weinstein before all of that stuff came out. So it seems like everyone knew this, right? Everyone knew that he was, like, this bad dude. And that show was, like, spot on with it. You can watch it again now. They've Some people have compiled the clips of, like, Harvey Weinberg in Entourage on YouTube. It's well worth a watch. Meanwhile, as Champ fought his legal case, the comedian would continue to tour the college circuit and do shows in comedy clubs and cruise lines in order to make a living. He also occasionally made television appearances, though these were a bit more hit and miss in terms of the man's still mediocre career. In what I consider exorbitant generosity, the presiding judge did not consider him a flight risk, and so mere days after being arrested, Vince Champ departed to work on board as an onboard comedian on a cruise in the Caribbean. Our suspected rapist just temporarily left the country wait can't you if you get bail surely that bail is like yo i mean this is again this is like all like <laughs> my entire like legal knowledge of the american system is just like from movies but aren't they always like yeah bail don't leave the state don't leave town definitely don't leave the country while he was gone detectives looked into exactly what they were dealing with meet vince champ 
Vince Horace Champ was born on September the 6th, 1961. His background details are suspiciously sketchy, and even his place of birth is frustratingly difficult to pinpoint. Wait, he was born in America, right? <laughs> Don't they keep records? It's not like he was born in 18th century Spain or whatever it'd be like okay well maybe I don't know why I chose Spain I'm sure they had lots of records but I don't know like you go back far enough and nowhere seems to be really sure it's like when was he born ah it was around the 1690s ish there's no real record uh we do know his father was born in cleveland ohio but moved to california to serve in the u.s army and later the u.s air force vince's father was 34 at the time of his son's birth and given his father's movements at the time that places vince's likely birthplace and the majority of his upbringing in the modest city of stockton california yeah although i guess if he's never shared it publicly then how would we know can you look this stuff up i feel like you could look this up can't you look up someone's birth to maybe not that's probably a privacy thing you probably can't. If not Stockton, then Vince was born wherever in California his father was briefly posted before the family settled in Stockton long term. Either way, this places Vince Champ as a California resident for pretty much his entire life. This may come into play later. Yeah, I get the thing. I was like, David, this better be foreshadowing <laughs> because otherwise we've just got into like depth of where this guy was born. I even went off on a tangent about it and I'm like, wait, why does this matter in any way whatsoever? Foreshadowing, friends. Foreshadowing. We also have precious little information about Vince Champ's, Champ's upbringing or family life. Vince had seven siblings? Damn. Parents been busy. One of whom, a brother, died some years ago. Some former colleagues, yeah, I mean, got seven brothers and sisters. The guy's, what, 61? He was born in 61, so that makes him, well, like 62. <laughs> That's an interesting coincidence. Um, yeah, he's got seven kids. Chances, like, I mean... It's not super unusual for one of them to be dead already. Some former colleagues of Champ have speculated that he had a strict upbringing, which wouldn't be surprising, being a son of an Air Force serviceman. We have no information on whether the family was highly religious or secular, though with a number of children and Champ's later use of prayer during his rape, so place my money on tending towards the religious. We also do not know whether Vince Champ's family life was stable or abusive. Sure, the Air Force father may have been strict, but there are varying degrees of strictness and not all of them entail abuse. While many criminal profiles have the trauma of an abusive childhood as a contributing factor to later adult behavior, there is no evidence one way or the other. In Champ's case, an abusive childhood is certainly not required for criminal activity, and there are plenty of people who go on to do twisted things who seem to have had a perfectly decent upbringing. And a stable home, yeah, but there's going to be a correlation between, like, you know, bad upbringing and crime, right? That's pretty well established, I feel. And a stable home life does not eliminate the possibility of undocumented abuse by a teacher, pastor, or other trusted adult authority figure. Specific to serial rapists, statistically more often than not, the perpetrators of sexual assaults were some uh, were somehow sexually abused themselves as children. We simply don't know in Vince Champ's case. Nature or nurture, or maybe both. If we were to interpret Champ's uh, faux-polite behavior during the sexual assaults and the request for prayers being connected to some kind of sexual repression and a strict upbringing, then some combination of childhood abuse may definitely have been a factor. Allegedly. A word which I'd like to see on a casual criminalist t-shirt someday. I don't know about the audience, but I'd buy it and wear it with pride. I'm actually working, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, so I won't go over it in a ton of detail, but I'm working on the first merch item for this channel, which is the notebook which says definitely not my crimes on the front, which is going to be awesome. I just wasn't happy with the print-on-demand options that were a bit crap, so I'm working on a really nice one, getting it specially made. It's going to be awesome.
uh maybe a month two months fingers crossed there is only one other strange indicator of something amiss in champ's upbringing the fact that vince champ's background is so difficult to unearth that his relatives have never rushed to claim him sure they did not fly to his defense when he was charged with rape which is completely understandable but they didn't seem to engage with him for the years that he was making waves in his comedy career either which may imply that the family was indeed strict or that they did not approve of champs moving off to la to pursue an entertainment career or is it possible that champs darker behaviors manifested themselves earlier than we know and this is the reason why his family had little contact regardless at some point either before or after his crimes his family appears to have disowned him but that is largely speculation on my part again allegedly 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 yeah i'm glad to see this word being used here because you know <laughs> always gotta throw that in when it's not like proven <laughs> allegedly i mean definitely not allegedly for that just the what use the word allegedly is good vince's act Vince Champ started doing stand-up comedy in 1985 at the age of 24 and was active until 1997. A sample of Vince Champ's comedy is decidedly rare to come across since he wasn't very famous at the time of his arrest. The 1980s and 1990s VHS footage of his work was largely scrubbed clean before it could be immortalized on the internet. However, you can see one of Vince's full sets on YouTube by simply searching his name, where you can see him performing on VH1 in 1990, where Vince is in introduced by Rosie O'Donnell, who surreally calls him a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vince Camp! This is... Wait, so he wasn't very famous? Uh, 1980s, 1990s. When was he arrested? I don't remember when he was arrested, but I feel like in 1990, VH1. Okay, so I guess this... It must have come later, because then you're, like, famous, right? Rosie O'Donnell, I've heard of her. Like, if you're getting introduced by her, that's a big deal, I think. I listened to a podcast... Isn't she friends with Tom Cruise? And he's mega famous. He's like the most famous. Or is that just my boomer energy thinking that Tom Cruise is still the most famous person? It's probably some like, I don't know, like Justin Bieber or something, isn't it? Lord forgive us as a species for liking Justin Bieber's music. Good Lord. I told the story before, maybe not on this podcast, but I was like, there's got to be something to this, right? Justin Bieber, right? He's super famous. His music is, you know, some of the most listened to stuff on Spotify. So I'm like, it's probably, you know, open your mind from your boomer energy, fact boy, and have a listen to some Justin Bieber. And I did. And it's awful. It's truly dreadful music. And I hate it. Scroll down to read the inevitable Norm Macdonald references in the comments. If you want to dig a little deeper for Vince's act, it's still possible to find footage of him competing in the 1992 edition of the American Idol forerunner Star Search. Champ actually did quite well in that competition, coming out of it with a $100,000 prize. That is... did quite well. In the 1990s? $100,000? That's a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but prize money in the 90s on TV shows was terrible. To use the lingo of the biz, Vince Champ's act was what you'd call hack or hacky, in that he was extremely predictable, formulaic, and never pushed the boundaries of his comedy. Well, I mean, I don't want to defend the guy's comedy because he's a horrible monster. I mean, he was good enough to win $100,000 and get on VH1 and be Rosie O'Donnell's friend, allegedly. It can't have been that bad. It's term comedians reserved for people who only tell jokes or work, work angles that are guaranteed to get a cheap laugh. If there's one label you don't want to receive in comedy from your peers, it is being a hack. Yeah, but also who cares? 
I mean, yeah, it, it, okay. Like, it's good to be a comedian who pushes the edge and stuff, but there's also nothing wrong with being a comedian who treads ground that's been done before and actually makes a living as a comedian. Because you could bet there are a whole lot of comedians out there who aren't hacks, but are also not successful. Because they just don't because they're just they're they're pushing the boundary stuff just isn't funny like a successful hack comic is <laughs> great analogy but more successful than someone who is a like non-hack unsuccessful comic am i making any sense whatsoever with this train of thought i'm just saying that commercial comedy or whatever this guy is like hack comedy commercial comedy like broadly appealing cheap laugh comedy it made this guy a career it made this guy a hundred thousand dollars Another trait that you'll notice about his act is the amateur mistake of just plowing through his pre-prepared lines. He works slightly too fast and generally doesn't give the jokes enough time to marinate. This is a mistake frequently made by less seasoned stand-ups who think they need to constantly force high energy on stage rather than just relaxing and doing what comes naturally in tandem with the audience. You can't be naturally high energy every night. Mm, I don't know cocaine would beg to differ audiences can usually spot fake energy pretty well and sometimes a slower world-weary approach can work well with the same material on evenings where you've had an exhausting day in short a bit of on-stage honesty can be the best policy in a performance a great example of this is bill burr but honesty isn't something champ really excelled at yeah bill burr i'm just thinking about that now i listen to his uh, bill burr's monday morning podcast it's on youtube and i guess it's a podcast as well lately i i mean just with youtube premium i listen to so many uh, uh, how many of you i really wonder let me know in the comments if you're watching this on youtube but you're not really watching it because you got youtube premium you just got your headphones in your phone in your pocket or whatever that's how i i swear most podcasts i consume that way these days because they're also on youtube and it's just easier because i don't know just youtube's so easy to consume stuff and then sometimes if people refer to an image you're just like, oh yeah look i'll just take it out of my pocket and have a look amazing probably how you're watching this one or listening to this one what are we talking about oh yeah bill burr i never really thought about like his energy level but bill burr's super chill most of the, i mean he gets you know riled up and that's particularly funny but most of the time he's like yeah how you doing I'm bill burr this kind of speaks like this i mean he doesn't because he's got an american accent but he's always like yeah and this happens ah interesting ah Bill Burr. I mean, I love him. It's it's really funny. He's an extremely funny dude. <laughs> You'll notice that Champ's act hinges on his being perceived as intelligent and quick-witted. Even debonair other comedians deliberately make themselves appear low intelligence, like the actually quite intelligent Norm Macdonald, for instance, usually to win over the audience, but also because people generally don't like being spoken down to in a comedy show. People like don't like being spoken down to in general. Uh, some other comedians like to come off drunk or troubled or otherwise broken to enhance the feeling of chaos as they deliver material. Champ's category of male comic is to come off as suave, handsome, and intelligent. Any male comic will tell you that this is a deliberate design since it helps comedians pick up women at the bar after his set. And apparently, Vince Champ had great success at this. Clean cut, articulate, tall, handsome. People who knew him said that he was leaving with a new woman almost every night. So in Vince Champ's case, we already know we're dealing with that category of predators who have no problem getting sex, but go out of their way to commit sexual assault anyway as a way of satisfying a pathological need for control. Vince Champ was also a clean comic, he, uh, and he immediately goes out of his way in every act to let you know it. And I quote, Can you believe it? I don't drink, I don't smoke, occasionally do a little heroin, ha ha ha. 
Wait, so this means... Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, well, that is clean. Is that clean then to make a joke about drug use? I guess, it's just no swearing. I know so little about comedy, despite how much I enjoy it. What this means is that he doesn't swear, he doesn't make too many lewd remarks, though he does make a few tame innuendos, and he doesn't engage with any edgy material. But he just said he does a little heroin. <laughs> that feels contradictory. By design, Champ wanted to uh, have a full mainstream audience accepting him. He, he wasn't like those other comics in those smoky nightclubs. He was good, clean fun for the whole family. And with his clean cut and polite exterior, how could anyone doubt him? I mean, you could literally say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, occasional rapist. And it's like, it, dude. <laughs> uh, I guess that would be a little too close to home. Finally, it is widely accepted in comedy circles nowadays that Vince Champ was something of a race traitor. Not my words, that's just how he's depicted by other comics, and not without merit. Champ openly disdained other black comics while doing his act. Oh! He's black, in my mind I just totally had him as a white dude. I don't know why, I just... <laughs> I don't have to explain this, it's just how he was in my mind. One of his most overused lines was, Unlike most black comedians, I don't have a white girlfriend, which plays on an African-American stereotype that when black men make it rich or famous, they stop dating African-American women. It's quite a nasty thing to say. This was also by design, as it would appeal to predominantly white audiences. Yeah, I mean, I get where... I mean... I, I, yeah, that seems kind of like... Well, I don't know, it just makes him seem like they're the douchebag, doesn't it? Champ didn't bother producing comedy for black audiences and stood deliberately apart from the comedy renaissance that currently was sweeping through African-American stand-up with the likes of Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Patrice O'Neill, and the breakthrough show In Living Color. Yeah, I mean, all people who are actually funny. Um... Yeah, I don't know, this makes it just seem like they're the dickhead, doesn't it? Champ's strategy was to sidestep all this competition and become the clean-accented token black comedian who could tour the Midwest and the Bible Belt. Though why he felt it necessary to open most of his acts by immediately distancing himself from his peers just to deliver hack jokes, I could not say. Also, wasn't he just like, I want to appeal to a mainstream audience? And then he's like, yes, except for the large portion, you know, relatively large proportion of my... Of where are my words? Where are my words? Can you guys hear that, hear that drilling? My neighbor's like trying to drill through the wall, it sounds like. I'm probably just putting in a shelf, but it's kind of annoying. Um, yeah, but so he, he wants his comedy to appeal to like a wide-ranging audience and as many people as possible, except for black people. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> why, just, why not just make it appeal to everyone? Just leave that hacky joke out of the beginning and you'll be fine. Weird. Why is that where you want to push the envelope? As an aside, the line, unlike most black comedians, I don't have a white girlfriend, turned out to be bullshit. According to comedian Ron Bennington, almost invariably the women Champ went home with after his set were white. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that a serial rapist turns out to be a hypocrite. Oh, I know why I thought he was white. Um, because at the beginning the woman said, sounds like a white dude. Right? Like 20s. White sounding. Yeah, okay, that's why. And also, I mean, to be honest, if, even if that, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, casual criminals, most of the criminals seem to be pretty white. So that's where they are in my mind. Also, I'm white. So <laughs> it's like brilliant, Simon. <laughs> so you imagine all of the criminals are exactly like you. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't explain it. I'm so sorry. When it came to the question of race in his acts, Champ never really made fun of white people. He did not reference historical or present racism, nothing to make a predominantly white audience uncomfortable. When he did poke fun at race, he was almost always self-deprecatingly making fun of himself. Many have compared Vince Champ's comedy style to that of Bill Cosby, 
Cosby, another notorious rapist who's out of prison, which is crazy. All the stuff that he was like convicted of or like, you know, allegedly did the other the other stuff, I guess, that he wasn't convicted of. I'm not super familiar. But what I do know is he was not a good dude, allegedly. And now he's out of prison because there was some mistake or something, which is like shit, Bill. You got those good lawyers. Like, that is the biggest advertisement for Bill Cosby's lawyers that I've ever seen. But from what I've seen, I would say that Vince Champ was even more apologetic and self-deprecating about his ethnicity than even Cosby was. One frequent joke is Vince Champ would point out that he had a Caucasian-sounding voice. There we go. That's what I was talking about. Which would be, quote, very useful when it came to getting that bank loan over the phone. Ha ha ha. Champ's voice itself sounds reminiscent of a radio announcer or TV newsreader. It's no wonder that some of Champ's victims, not properly seeing him during the attacks, reported him as a white man. Start things off by saying I right away kind of consider myself quite different from most black comedians because I have a black girlfriend. So, you know, I am. There is another interesting thing to note about Champ's voice. It sounds fake, like Dave Chappelle putting on an exaggerated cliché white man's voice. Certainly, there is no regional accent like it in Stockton or California more widely or even in his father's birthplace of Ohio. Certain accents might get close to that, but these were the soupy, melodic tones of radio announcers or TV newsreaders. Unnatural. And if Champ used this voice on stage, that would be one thing, but he persisted using the voice off stage as well. It wasn't just a performance gimmick, it was an assumed identity. Or he just had a weird accent. I know I've got a weird accent, and it's because, I don't know, like, I'm British, but it's been a long time since I lived in England, and other people's accents, like, rub off on you a little bit, and I also have a South of England, quite impressionable accent, I think. Like, I'm one of those people, it's like, you know, you just start speaking like the people you're hanging out with, and you're like, ah... Shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> Sounds kind of offensive. Uh, in short, everything about Champ's act was designed to hide who he really was and to manipulate his audience into accepting him. As such, Champ wielded his polite, clean-cut image as a means of exerting social control. Oh, how life. Art imitates life. The feigned banality of evil. Vince Champ started in comedy in 1985, doing the small club circuit. Here, he met many comedians who would later make it big. Rosie O'Donnell, as we've already mentioned, Mark Maron did some of his first midweeks with Vince. Jason Stewart, a gay comic who didn't get an easy ride of it back then, said to be one said one of his biggest supporters and kindest confidants was Vince Champ, and uh, who even helped Stewart score some early gigs on the road. Comedian Roy Bennington described Champ as a guy everybody likes. He comfortably moved in and out of white society. Society. He was everybody's best friend. Although Norm MacDonald competed in Star Search two years earlier than Champ, I've not found any indication they knew each other as well, but Norm was aware of Champ's existence as a comedian coming up around the same time as him. In a travesty of justice, Norm did not win Star Search the year he competed, but he landed a spot on Letterman soon afterwards. So screw Star Search for not being able to tell the difference between a comedic genius and a serial rapist. Or, I mean, more accurately or more appropriately, a, a hack comic. Since Champ's career is best described as mediocre, a high point was definitely Star Search in 1992. He opens for Jay Leno, Gary Shandling, Paul, uh, Pat Paulson, Joe Cocker, Leon Redbone, and Chuck Mangione. I don't know that last name or how to pronounce it. He had TV spots on Into the Night and The Byron Allen Show and briefly had a recurring role 
on the match game. In case you're wondering, some of these things are decently respectable, while others are a real who's who of who gives a f***. But by the mid-1990s, a flagging career made the college circuit an appealing prospect and moneymaker for champ. Yeah, I guess that college circuit, when I was at those comedy shows at university, I was always thinking, these guys are up and coming, right? But now that I think about it, maybe these are the guys who just never really fully made it. I always thought, yes, these guys are going to be big someday, but maybe they just, maybe that's where the level they play at. That's kind of sad. I never really thought about it that way. I was like, yeah, these guys are going to be big. They're so funny. And it's like, no, 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 these guys are really funny. And they just didn't make it big because they're not as funny as the guys who are really funny. It's interesting. It's interesting. Shortly after his arrest, some newspapers wrongly referred to Vince Champ's act as raunchy because it fit the story of a serial rapist. But nothing could be further from the truth. Vince Champ had cultivated himself as a clean comic, and he was particularly in demand in the Midwest where he toured two months of the year from 1993 to 1997. Two months of the year? That's all he has to work? Damn. Archie Graham, director of student life at Milwaukee Area Technical College, said that Champ assured me he supported school policy and didn't use inappropriate behavior in his act. What an edgy badass. Carlita Scott, student activities coordinator at Illinois State University, said he was never raunchy or offensive at all. His humor was geared toward college students, and one agent told me that he was so popular and personable that some schools invited him back three or four times. Indeed, Champ was popular on the college circuit with both students and administrators. He was clean, just daring enough in a lame 1990s Midwest kind of way to keep the students entertained as they got hammered off cheap beer. He was risque sometimes, but not edgy or controversial. This was enough for college-age students who in those days, deprived of the general pit of filth that forms on the internet, were starved for anything they could get that was remotely naughty. This was an era where you could make a fortune off of cheesy boner comedy film. Students wanted comedy, and it was in short supply. Quite unlike the quasi-Victorian children of the corn shtick that we see on many college campuses today. I also think... I don't know, David, I feel like you're being a bit harsh on clean comedy. There's, I, I feel, I mean, look, I swear all over the place. I feel it's a crutch, almost. Like, I feel that I use swearing as a way of emphasizing stuff because I'm not smart enough to come up with a better descri- description for emphasizing stuff. And I think comedians who manage to, who's that? There's the, the British comedian, Michael McIntyre, who's like undeniably very funny. It's a little bit cheesy. Uh, at times but it's like these are funny dude and he doesn't swear it's all clean and i'm like is that i i think that's almost more of a talent than someone who relies on dick jokes which uh, i don't know i love dick jokes i find it very very funny like i love non-clean comedy i it's most like i would prefer to watch that but making it clean is i feel like that's a skill in itself it's impressive but there were already a few cracks in Champ's squeaky clean facade. In 1996, he was placed on probation in order to attend domestic violence counseling for beating up his 17-year-old girlfriend. Wow. Okay. He also busted up some property during the incident. Well, let's just say that who cares about the other stuff? I feel like beating up your girlfriend, who's 17? Is that even allowed? How old's this dude? 1996, he was born in 61, 6, 7, 8. Oh, he's 35. Dude, what are you up to? <laughs> why do you have a th- why do you have a 17-year-old? Like, I'm 34. The idea of dating a 17-year-old, I'm like, what the fuck? What did you talk about? <laughs> it's like, what on earth could you possibly have in common? Apparently, it was an expensive stereo and some crockery. 
Okay. There's also some anecdotal evidence that Champ spent large amounts of money on prostitutes, allegedly, which in the 90s, it's all caps there from David, allegedly, which in 1990s LA was the furthest thing from safe, clean sex work and attracted all sorts of unsavory customers. Given he was already pulling from uh, regularly at comedy clubs, the uh, sex workers and serial rapes certainly point to a clear and troubling pathology. There's an entirely unrelated note. Also in 1996, Champ had filed for bankruptcy despite making good money from his middling comedy career. Okay. <laughs> I mean, brilliant. He's not great at... <laughs> Things that Champ does that are bad. <laughs> Rape. Beating up his underage girlfriend. Smashing in a stereo. Uh, and then, I don't know, those are like one, two, and three. And somewhere down at around 437, bad financial management. <laughs> ah! Uh, which might imply that Champ's extracurricular active pursuits were destabilizing an otherwise fairly solid lifestyle. And I'm going to throw in another allegedly there for good measure. Good job, David! Which brings us back to the rape of Heidi Hess on March the 5th, 1997. Throughout the entire atrocious act, Champ seemed oddly calm, polite, and even at one point asked why Heidi was crying, which is an odd question for a rapist to ask, assuming that they have an IQ slightly higher than a raccoon's. Yes. Ah. As it turns out from the attacker's psychological profile, the rapist had completely disassociated himself morally from what he was doing. He had justified his actions in his own mind. He thought a woman could not possibly refuse a sexual advance from someone as handsome and as charming as him. That is the most narcissistic thing that I've ever heard in my life. Uh, he was a textbook narcissist, there we go, with a pathological sense of entitlement to women's bodies. In his own mind, the assailant thought he was irresistible, and the woman had no need to cry from anything he did to her. Worst of all, he thought on some level that his victim would secretly enjoy what was happening. I mean, this guy was a real jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this is one of those things where it's like, wow, that's super f***ed up. <laughs> it's like, but also one of those things where it's like, why are we surprised in any way whatsoever that his brain is, like, <laughs> Obviously it is. He's a serial rapist. Additionally, Champ thought he was simply cutting to the chase by using physical coercion rather than a couple of hours of smooth talking in a bar somewhere. Mate, that is so messed up. It was through this thinking that the rapist had half deluded himself into thinking what he was doing was on some level consensual. And in the most f***ed up bit of logic that I've ever read, the rapist thought it was at least partly consensual, even if, and I put this in the biggest air quotations ever constructed in human history, the woman didn't agree. Yeah. Yeah, those need to be in, like, the biggest quotation marks ever constructed in history. Good lord. Needless to say that this sort of solipsistic bullshit doesn't usually stand up in court. I hate that I have to insert the word usually there. I'm like, yeah, why do you say usually? It'd be like, yeah, you're accused of rape. It wasn't rape. She loved it! God damn, my dudes. How is that a, something that usually doesn't stand up? <laughs> what the f justice system? And as a way of diminishing the severity of his atrocities, the rapist thought he was making up for his aggression by remaining polite and apologetic the entire time, as if he had accidentally stepped on her foot or asked to borrow some spare change. He thought by being polite he was softening things and doing his victim a favor, which is possibly the ugliest trait of this entire pathological way of thinking. And he asked her questions as though they were simply on a date somewhere, as if this would somehow relieve the tension and help keep the women calm 
and distracted. As bizarre as this modus operandi may seem at first, the actor being polite in the situation was this particular rapist's way of maintaining control, in the way another rapist might use threats or a weapon. As we know from countless studies in criminology, sexual assault is first and foremost about power and control, not solely about the sexual gratification of the perpetrator. In this case, the assailant had a track record of exerting power over people by using manipulative charm, tactics, and politeness in his real life with a reasonable degree of social success, and so the rapist thought he could somehow use the same tactics during his crimes. In reality, however, the two contexts did not translate to each other. All the rapist managed to do with his display of pseudo-manners was to make an atrocity all the more bizarre and creepy, and one could definitely argue more traumatizing for the victim. Yeah, dude, it's super weird. It is like, it's like skin-crawly creepy, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you so weird? Furthermore, beyond Champ's overwhelming drive to commit sexually heinous acts and the backward logic that influenced his behavior, the attacker was not altogether completely deranged. In regular life, he was a high-functioning individual, albeit with some carefully concealed impulses and opinions. Not to mention bad financial management. He knew on some level that what he was doing was wrong, at least in the eyes of the law, and he simply didn't care. All signs point to either psychopathy or sociopathy, with a heavy dose of self-absorbed rationalizations. Yeah, he does seem like that psychopath profile, right? I don't know, like... Manip- super manipulative in his career in his personal life and then especially the thing where he's like yeah 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 no deep down they love it and it's like dude that is the most psycho shit ever <laughs> what are you talking about which brings us to the extremely f-ed up parting shot of him asking his victims to pray for him. And while it could imply that the rapist on some level felt guilt for what he had done, this turns out to be incorrect. Later psychological evaluation would reveal that the act of prayer was the criminal's way of seeking cheap absolution so that he could brush off his guilt as easily and as carelessly as he would dandruff from his shoulder. The physical assault being concluded, Champ had not run out of psychological blows. Uh, the man in question wasn't particularly religious, not for at least a decade. He just knew that it was what some people did to win sympathy and forgiveness, admitting they are sinners who had committed vile deeds. And this was 1990s Midwest America. Perhaps his approach would delay the reporting of the crime by the victim or somehow contort the prosecution uh, or somehow contort the prosecution should he be identified. If he happened to be convicted for one such crime, it might get sympathy from a jury or a lighter sentence from a judge. I would like to think that the people could see through that and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just see it as rather than him being religious, as let's just see it as him being ultra f-ing creepy. And uh, maybe let's tack on some extra time for the creep factor. Hmm? Hmm? That'd be better. Maybe. Yes. Not that the perpetrator expected that to happen. He had been very, very careful in the execution of his crimes, enough to prompt smugness under interrogation. Except that time he did it in like that university and people saw him and then they saw him get into his car which was registered to his name that doesn't seem like the most careful thing ever in a word the man was a fake a phony and a liar a man who coldly lived his life by an impersonal algorithm of correct actions seeking the corresponding responses people weren't people they were objects to be prodded and poked for a predictable response he would say or do whatever needed to be done to suit his own advantage compel compliance in return or excavate himself from a crime he'd manipulate and control in order to get what he wanted what he felt he deserved vince champ viewed his audience this way he viewed his peers this way and pathetically this was also how he viewed women 
an unsurprising twist. While Vince Champ was working his Caribbean cruise, catching some sun, certain facts had come to light. Way back on February the 16th, 1997, Captain James Van Fossen of Davenport, Iowa, had been, had been investigating a college campus rape of his own. Oh, because <laughs> we're talking about cruises immediately. I was like, oh, yeah, he's the captain of the boat, but he's not. He's like a captain police officer of some kind, which makes more sense in the context of our story. <laughs> Although maybe the captain of the boat was like, that guy's a bit weird, isn't he? Uh, he had entertained the idea of an itinerant serial rapist, but suspected a food server or a professor traveling around giving talks or maybe an athlete going from school to school. It never occurred to him to look into the clean-cut comedian who had recently performed there. Far away in Lincoln, Nebraska, Detective Jeff Howard had been investigating another campus rape that had occurred 10 days earlier. We thought it was isolated at first, Howard said. It just didn't make sense that someone would be traveling and just stop through. After the March 5th rape of Heidi Hess in Omaha, investigator Mike Hawk thought to send out a teletype to other police officers in the Midwest inquiring about similar attacks with the same modus operandi. Over the next months, the attack was linked to others in Lincoln, Kenosha, Omaha, and Davenport. Further towns followed. All of them matched the profile of the perpetrator. Quote, that is when we realized there was a pretty good possibility that we had a serial rapist, said Sergeant Ken Koziol. The police in all these districts sent out for help to the FBI to coordinate and investigate across state lines. All told, the police linked the unknown perpetrator to seven rapes and attempted rapes in Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois, and Wisconsin. All of them occurred on college campuses. They're going to quickly, I guess, like, back in the day, even now, it'd be really hard to tie it up to like, okay, all of these rapes occurred at the same date that that comedian was at the universities because that's just going to be one thing going on in a whole pile of information that isn't easily accessible because you can't just look it up on the university website or whatever but if he's a suspect then they'll be like you were here you were here you were here you were here and lock it down but you've got to find him and have him as a suspect first otherwise i don't think you're going to find that needle in the haystack or maybe they will maybe they're better than i expect but they didn't have a suspect oh there we go then Pasadena happens and Vince got caught. If we count Pasadena, the suspect offense total increases to eight. I'm told that what clinched the issue was one of the victims heard Vince's voice on a radio show, but we can't confirm this. Either way, police looked into Champ's touring schedule between September 1996 and May 1997, and to quote one of Champ's booking agents, Scott Bass, it looked like a roadmap of where these rapes had occurred. Yeah, okay, exactly. As soon as, exactly what I said, as soon as they figured out it could be him, then they can look it all, match it all up, and then that's a hell of a coincidence. When the Midwest cops heard of the Pasadena case, they knew they had their man. According to Jeff Howard, once that last piece snapped into place, everything just made sense. Omaha put out a warrant for Vince Champ's arrest. Hearing of this, Champ abandoned his gig and flew home. The Midwest cops got wind of this and put out an all-alert. Champ was arrested when he arrived in Newark, New Jersey on May the 13th. This time, the judge was not so generous. Bail was set at a million dollars. He's been risking getting like seven rape convictions. Should there be bail, even if it's a million dollars? I mean, I guess that's just unaffordable for him. The idea of a touring stand-up comedian raping college students immediately sets off the jackals in the media. It was splashed across front pages of the entire USA for several days, from The Hollywood Reporter to The Washington Post the New York Times. Whoever said that all publicity is good publicity deserves to be shot. Yes, it's the most untrue thing ever. <laughs> 
it's like yo 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 if you're getting publicity for this it's like you're not gonna be like sweet finally some exposure <laughs> ah this is gonna do wonders for my career of course it's not you're just gonna end up in prison allegedly I bet Champ wasn't feeling too good at this moment, but there is some poetic justice in that this was the biggest publicity the hack comedian ever got. But Freeman, owner of the improv chain of comedy clubs, quite prestigious for comics, said, There are a lot of violent comics out there that you might think would do something like this. It's a nice way to talk about your employees, bud. But Vince was not one of them. Everybody I've spoken to is shocked. He's a very nice guy. Very polite. I mean, he's not a very nice guy. That's objectively untrue now, isn't it? The feigned banality of evil, indeed. If I don't see a post on the subreddit dedicated to nice guys at some point, then I will be crushingly disappointed. <laughs> yeah, although it has been covered to death, hasn't it? Uh, Ron Bennington, latest, not on the specific subreddit, but in general. Uh, there is a subreddit. It's not for casual criminalists, it's just mine. It's uh, like uh, r forward slash Simon Whistler, if you want to check it out. There's convos about cash crim and other stuff on there. You're uh, welcome to join that weird little part of the internet. Ron Bennington later said when he first heard the news that he thought, this is some kind of Midwestern grab the first black guy you see and string him up thing. It's not like he was running through town frothing at the mouth. Alas, this is one of the few cases where I'd like to think that it was police racism, but as we'll see in a moment, that's rather unlikely. In four out of the eight cases, Vince Champ was positively linked to crime to the crimes by DNA analysis. Oh my dude, you're going to prison for a long ass time with that DNA. In a few of the other rapes and attempted rapes, there was insufficient evidence to bring charges against him. Nevertheless, that was enough to convict Champ and put him away for life. He was thrown into the Nebraska State Pen, where he has been slapped with 30 to 40 to a 30 to 40 year sentence for the Lincoln rape and a 25 to 30 year sentence for the attack on Heidi House in Omaha, allowing for parole and good behavior which there certainly has been an absence of nope oh, there we go champ might get out in 2033 how's that possible he got 40 years and then 25 30 years four five six seven he was convicted in when 1990 late 90s oh i guess if the sentences are serving cons- uh, concurrently which is possible and good behavior he could be getting out wow um i kind of just assumed they'll die in prison but i mean he'll be like 30, he'll be 70 when he gets out he shouldn't get out should he I don't know. Oh, he sounds like a total psycho. Is he going to be, I mean, allegedly, is he going to be rehabilitatable? Should he survive beyond these sentences, he'll be shipped off to Iowa, where he'll face two more consecutive life sentences. Oh, okay. (laughs) There we go. Never mind. That's what's going on. Consecutive sentences elsewhere. Without question, according to that sentencing, the man will die in prison. Entrant, Vince Champ said, had a tendency to plead no contest given the mounting of evidence against him, but in prison, he maintains his innocence. And I'm dating Margot Robbie. (laughs) Get f***ed, mate, yeah. DNA, man. Doesn't kind of lie, does it? While in prison, Vince Champ has committed indecent exposure on several occasions, has masturbated in front of a female guard, is frequently in fights with inmates, once biting off a chunk of a dude's ear, and he has stomped on a few people's faces, causing abrasions and bleeding. Holy shit, this dude got into prison and he's like... He's let out that he's let out that inner demon that was in him all along, hasn't he? The mask has fallen. The sex stuff is inexcusable and fits the perp's form. In regard to the fights, one could speculate whether in prison the once clean-cut and debonair Vince Champ is finally showing his true colors. I reckon so. Or whether he's simply evolved to become a tough bastard to survive as a sexual offender in the U.S. prison system where sex pests are placed at the bottom of the totem pole. By the way, I've never understood how rape in the prison system is just permissively viewed as part of the punishment. It's not, is it? I've never understood how rape in the prison system is permissively viewed as... I think they understand that it's a huge problem. 
Who says he's part of the party? Is that an attitude that people have towards rape in prison? That's insane. That's insane. There should there should not be rape in prison. Obviously not. It should be massive. There shouldn't be violence in prison. We should be doing our damnedest to stamp that shit out. Prison shouldn't be a place where you go to essentially get tortured. It should be a place where you go to serve a punishment dished out to you by the state. Christ. That's not... I can't... No. No, 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 no. Am I just being super naive here? Damn. But maybe that's just me. Norm MacDonald has also made a few jokes about this hypocrisy if you want to look them up. Speaking of Norm MacDonald's and hypocrisy, he once referenced his friend, that sanctimonious Twitter hound Patton Oswald, who said in reference to Bill Cosby that the worst thing about the case was Cosby's hypocrisy. And I disagree. To which Norm famously included in his stand-up that he didn't think the hypocrisy was the worst part. It was probably the rapes. I thought it was the raping. <laughs> yeah, I do find this and uh like it's something i don't know i get a lot of you know different pieces of writing from a lot of different writers and uh it is something like it is something people often do by accident where it's like and the worst part was the hypocrisy it's like wait 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 no 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 it wasn't it wasn't the hypocrisy of hitler like not looking super aryan that wasn't the worst part of of the holocaust it just wasn't it's that's incorrect hypocrisy was way down the list probably on page 20 or some shit. This is a real pisser. Uh, it is a real pisser that Vince Champ of similar age is still alive in prison and Norm MacDonald is dead. But to quote another set of comedy geniuses, Monty Python, Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show. Keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. I'm not going to close by repeating Norm's he was a real jerk punchline. I'm not a comedian, but I will point out that Champ's body of work has largely been lost to time or scrubbed by the networks. I wonder, as he rots in prison, if he realizes that his lasting legacy to the world of comedy is being a punchline to a much better comedian's joke. I hope so. And uh, also, I don't know, he's in prison. Justice was served. I don't think we need to, like, I mean, do we need to scrub all of his works from history? I don't know. I don't care. I don't think it's that important. He wasn't that funny. It's all going to be forgotten anyway. And, well, he's in prison for the rest of his life. So, I don't know. If I was a victim, I'd be pretty happy with that result. Dismembered appendices. Vince Champ's spree of campus rapes and attempted rapes between 1996 and 1997 may have been the worst of it, possibly triggered by tumultuous events of breakups, violence, and bankruptcy the previous year. It's also possible that the man's record goes back much further than any of us realize. Obviously, the first place to look is any other unsolved sexual assaults that coincide with his tour schedules going back to the 1980s. I was just assuming they did that. When you were, isn't that how you found all these other ones as well? I mean, he's in prison forever, but it's nice to get some closure, no? And given that it takes time for a serial rapist to fall into a pattern, one might look into unsolved cases further back where Vince Champ might have still been sloppy. To fellow researchers out there, I'd suggest starting with Stockton, California, and gradually widening your search to encompass the whole state. Given his conduct in prison, the man's got formed to be involved in far more than what he's currently been linked to. Number two. As part of the Black Lives Matter movement, some people have argued that the sentencing Vince Champ received was inspired by racism and was far too harsh. I don't know. I'd say it was inspired by the uh, the rapes that he committed, but that's just me.
This certainly would hold firm with the Clinton policy at the time to relentlessly pursue what the administration called super predators, which is widely regarded as a racist form of classification and policy. Is life in prison deserved for four confirmed sexual assaults and probable links to others? Certainly, there have been far lighter sentences for far more severe offenses in criminal history. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, this is. I mean, I'm not going to be naive here. Like, there is a racial divide of how long people get sentenced to by judges and juries for crimes, right? Black people get screwed over in that regard. Am I, is that, is that right? I feel like that's right. Um, obviously, I don't know. It feels like this guy belongs in prison for forever. And honestly, if he was white, I'd feel exactly the same way. But then I also had that moment of maybe he could be, re can he be rehabilitated? But he seems like an absolute animal in prison. So I'm going to say no. And I'd say exactly the same thing if the dude was white. Obviously. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Certainly there have been far lies. Oh, he said that already. But I'm also of the general opinion that predatory leap from the bushes serial rapist should be buried underneath the prison. Either way, well, I don't think there should be death penalty here. Either way, I'm sure as hell not brave enough. Oh, buried underneath the prison so they die in prison. Okay, yeah, I get it. Sorry, stupid. Not a big brain. Either way, I'm sure as hell not brave enough to wade into the Morris of American race-based politics. Whoops-a-doodle. <laughs> <laughs> but feel free to slug it out in the comments number well, on the statistics showing that black people get sent to prison for longer and more often for the same crimes isn't that what i don't know i don't know i don't know but i just feel that that's isn't that what people say based on stats i'm sure someone in the comments will be like uh simon that's obviously wrong and there'll be other people be like simon yes obviously right although it, it's not a debate when there are statistics it shouldn't be, at least. Number three. What is perhaps mo more uplifting is the story of Heidi Hess. When Champ went down, she was already, well, uh, she was asked what sort of punishment she thought he deserved. Hess replied, what's the number that's going to make me feel better? I don't know. I just don't want him on the streets. I don't want him doing this to other women. For two weeks after the attack, Heidi's father would come to her apartment every night, armed with a shotgun, where he stayed on guard till morning. Heidi's friends brought her groceries so she could stay inside. She became a shut-in. Then one day on TV, she saw the father of Ronald Goldman talking about his likely murderer O.J. Simpson and how he wouldn't rest until O.J. was behind bars. Quoting Heidi, I sat there and thought, that poor man has no control over that. His whole life has turned into the day his son was murdered. Heidi didn't want to be Goldman's father in 10 years. One of her friends said, you've given more than a month of your life to the man who attacked you. How much more do you want to give? None, Heidi declared. The same day, she walked outside, turned back several times. She made it to her car. She drove to her friend's house and sat on the driveway for two minutes until she could work up the courage to walk inside. She had dinner and drove home. It took months before Heidi had to stop forcing herself out of her own apartment and longer before the nightmares stopped. That was really how I started to heal. I made a decision. I would not let this man have any more control over my life than he already took. Heidi has lived a happy life with her partner and a thriving career. She rarely thinks about Champ anymore, but she occasionally talks about her experience with those in need. To quote her, People need to know rape happens to people they know, not nameless, faceless people they have never come into contact with. Good show, Heidi. You've got my admiration. I wish I was half as strong as you. Yeah, I agree. Heidi, legend. Nice positive note to end that on um, in a video that was uh, mostly about a total piece of shit. I mean, this guy was a real jerk. <laughs> so... Thank you so much for watching or listening to today's episode of The Casual Criminalist. If you enjoy this show, please do give us a review if you're uh, listening on a podcast app or leaving a comment below, a subscribe, a like if you're watching the video on YouTube. And I'll see you next time.